Hello and welcome to Pali, Brandu's weekly discussion podcast. I'm Prashant Perumal, your host for the day. Last week, a three-judge bench at the Supreme Court put forward the idea of setting up an expert committee that could recommend ways to protect common investors from market events. The court suggestion comes in the wake of the steep crash in stocks of the Adani Group's companies following a report that was released last month by Hindenburg Research, which is a US-based investment research firm. It's estimated that the fall in the group's stocks has cost investors over 100 billion US dollars. To discuss this issue, I have with me Ms. Jayati Ghosh, who is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and Mr. Anand Srinivasan, who is an investor and a personal finance advisor. Uh, my first question to Mr. Anand, like, could you uh, give us our readers kind of a glimpse about the fundamental nature of risk in markets and why uh, the returns differ based on risk? Like uh, fixed deposits gives a lot less return when compared to your equi- equity investment. So why is that like from an economic perspective? Yeah, It is an economist measures risk completely differently from the way we measure risk and investor measure risks. Yeah, well, economics think volatility is risk, but volatility is not risk. In fact, volatility is an investor's friend. So when the, when the volatility refer, refers to a price swing in the price of an asset, in a case of a fixed deposit, there is no swing in the price of the asset. The underlying asset is constantly priced. Whereas in the case of a bond or in the case of a stock, there is a price swing on both sides. So Volatility is measured using alpha, beta, and several other Greek alphabets. But basically, an investor is worried only about a permanent loss of capital. For an investor, it is very good that there is volatility because a volatility gives him an opportunity to make profits. Whatever an investor believes and fears is permanent loss of capital. As long as there is volatility, volatility is a friend of an investor and is not to be worried about at all. Whereas economists look at volatility as a measure all the time. So that is the fundamental difference. Let me give you the example of the mighty Tata's. Two of their companies was available dirt cheap. One, after they made a mistake in buying chorus in England in 2008, the price dropped from 1,000 to 250 rupees. If an investor had accumulated patiently over the years, he would have been laughing all the way to the bank because there's no way that Tata's are going to go bankrupt. Same thing was in Titan when it was available. A 10 rupee share was available for 3 rupees. Today, a 5 rupee share is after a bonus is trading at 2,500 rupees. So volatility is something we love. In the case of Adani, which we are discussing now, this was a highly manipulated stock. The price to earnings ratio was 326. The price to book was something like 13. This is five times how Hindustan Unilever was valued. And this was an infrastructure business, which is capital intensive, gives low return, and has a long gestation. So this was a case of uh, a capture and abuse of regulatory process because none of the rules were apparently followed. 75% was owned by the owner. 16% was owned by his brother through Mauritius and 4.5% by LIC. All this according to the Hindenburg. So there was an artificial shortage in stocks. And uh, with a lot of PR, the retail investor was forced to buy that. And with the rising value of stock, the company itself got more benefit because 
it pledged it with state owned institutions like state bank of india to raise money so this has nothing to do with risk but failure of regulator and regulation completely and nothing to do with risk everybody knew this was a stock to avoid okay thanks mr anamis jayati can you shed some light on the fundamental question of risk and return yeah yes well you know typically in financial markets the investments that are considered riskier will be requiring a higher return to attract investors and this is true across the board it's true in geographical locations for example investments in some countries in africa or asia are considered riskier than investments in the united states or europe and so it's necessary to actually offer a higher return to attract investors and so typically there is a relationship between risk and the return in that where there is a certain stock or security or investment that is generating a higher return you would expect it to be riskier now it is true that in economists typically look at the variation the change in prices of an asset as an indicator of the risk but that's not the only indicator because in fact there are uh, investments let's say in particular countries or particular sectors like infrastructure that are seen as riskier because there's a longer time duration involved and many other unexpected forces can come into play so essentially it's broadly seen and this is true even in the economics of financial markets that where there's a more risky asset it is likely to command a higher return it's it has to have a higher return in order to get investors it's true that the adani case is quite different to begin with the stocks were not volatile in terms of falling up and down they were going up all the time for the last several years adani enterprises and the related stocks were rising dramatically so they were not risky in that sense they were risky if you looked at other underlying factors but these were not seen because of other reasons why adani stocks were valued for example the perception of political connections the perception that there was an ability to attract finances from public sector and other sources so it wasn't as if the adani group stocks were actually seen as risky however they did generate incredibly high returns as mr srinivasan has noted okay thank you uh, my next question to anand again uh, i want to like focus on the sc's recommendation about like the need for protecting investors do you think that's a justified concern at all i will get to the question of Uh, whether the SEBI can actually protect the uh, things like objectively and stuff, but the whole focus of the SEC's observation about uh, protecting investors is that ne- necessary? And can you tell me why and what are the uh, consequences of, of that? Yeah. See, I think there are sufficient laws in place and sufficient regulation in place to protect a small investor. I don't think we need another committee with a judge sitting on it to tell us what to do. the role of the supreme court is not to make laws the role of the supreme court is to enforce laws at the supreme court court enforced regulation this this sorry state of affairs in adani wouldn't have come to place it is the failure of regulation and i also consider supreme court a regulator the failure of the supreme court and the sebi and the securities appellate tribunal to enforce existing regulation that is the problem not we don't need another committee and another method to find out how to protect the small investor if people are greedy you cannot protect them from greed the government is unable to make let's take the case of cryptocurrency it is very clear china has banned cryptocurrency because it leads to flight of capital 
America is not bothered because all the capital goes to the United States. So we should have banned cryptocurrency a long time ago. The Supreme Court is waiting for the government to respond and the government is waiting for the G20 to respond. Billions of dollars have been lost by average Indians in cryptocurrency. A report says more than 5 crore Indians have been invested in crypto and lost money. Now, why is the Supreme Court not talking about it? Why is the Supreme Court giving enormous time to the government to respond? The government has not been responding on the crypto. It's not telling us whether crypto is legal or crypto is illegal. It has to make up its mind one way or the other. For a change, the Reserve Bank has shown spine and said that it is dangerous. And this is precisely because of flight of capital. But why would you recommend a ban on cryptocurrency but not regulation to actually deal with highly speculative stocks? Cryptocurrency is not that exactly. No, they don't. In a, a stock is backed by assets of assets and liabilities of a company. There are cash flows. If a company is properly run, there are cash flows. And there's a board and there's an accountability. There is an office. There is they have to run a business. If they don't do it, there is a criminal law procedure to chase them. A cryptocurrency has no cash flow generating capability. It is only an imaginary asset. The only advantage of a cryptocurrency is the shortage. If the amount of cryptocurrencies is short, is unlimited, the price of cryptocurrency will rise. If I increase the supply of cryptocurrency, automatically the price will fall. It is only a supply-demand situation. Okay, but, but let's say there's actually, okay, let's say there's actually a higher regulation because uh, uh, to, let's say, to protect cons- uh, investors. Do you see a consequence? Do you call, do you see if that's possible, or if, if they actually do try to do that? What do you see as the consequences? See, of that? Technically, let us go back to go, and there is no consequence. People will become genuine investors will leave the country. Already, you would have seen in the last one year, the FIIs have pulled out money. The foreign institutional investors have been withdrawing money from India for the last 13, 14 months. You will see as a consequence of this. More people with more foreign money will leave. It is not only people leaving stock. General Motors has left the country. Okay. I think you answered my question. I, I, we get your point. Yes. Yeah. Well, first of all, let's, you know, it's quite interesting that the Supreme Court has chosen to take this up because less than 2% of the Indian population is involved in the stock market in retail. So retail investors are a very, very small proportion of the population. And typically, though they are those who have wealth to spare. And particularly those who are willing to invest in riskier and higher return kinds of activities, they are those who should be willing to bear that risk. So if you're going in for something that is offering you a higher return, because you think that you know you can get some money out of it, you obviously can afford it. I don't think the Supreme Court should be intervening in these matters. What it should be doing, as Mr. Srinivasan pointed out, is to ensure that the regulatory bodies in finance actually do their job. Because it's not so much the retail investors we should worry about. We should be worrying about the LIC, about other insurance agencies in India, public insurance agencies, about the uh, State Bank of India. In other words, the places that hold the bulk of personal savings in India. These institutions have been investing in something that has, is seen to be problematic, in which, in let's say, private mutual funds did not invest. That's a concern. Why did they keep doing this despite various red flags? It suggests that 
our public agency institutions have also not been following the predicted financial norms. And that in turn is something that the regulatory agency should have noticed and flagged. So yes, there is a broader failure of the public financial institutions, which seem to have been, shall we say, too responsive to non-economic and uh, considerations, uh, possibly political considerations, and the regulatory agencies that haven't really been doing their job. Mr. Anand, your take, because, like, fundamentally, do you think government agencies actually will be... I'm in complete agreement with you. Yeah, I'm just trying to understand if, the, if if that's actually even a solution that's worth pondering over. Like, can regulatory bodies actually protect investors at all? Like, and uh, I guess like SEBI has been uh, SEBI has been sitting even like uh, there have been accusations that the Hindenburg Research companies made uh, that have been made by others as well in the past. And why didn't why wasn't there any action taken? Yeah. The Hindenburg Research has filed an RTA application with SEBI. And the RTA application says that they are deliberating the matter. They have not reached a conclusion. They have, they have neither said yes nor they have said no. And Mahumodi Moitra, the West Bengal uh, MP, has been writing to SEBI since 2019. The problem in SEBI is it's an institutional capture. You have not had a proper regulator like Dr. Rajan or uh, Dr. Y.V. Reddy. Instead, you have got somebody from the industry. Mr. Madhupuri Bank comes from ICICI Securities. She has had a long career in investment banking. She is a player. You cannot make a player a referee, boss. This is not a cricket match. A retired player cannot become a referee. Can they? So, in, in case of securities, there is always a lifelong interest. At 92, Warren Buffett still is buying stocks. So how will you make Warren Buffett the chairman of ACC? And so Madhupuri Bank has been the CEO of a broker, ICICI Securities. She has worked with several companies in India and abroad. She might have retired. She might have no interest anymore. But that does not qualify her to become a regulator. Once a player, well, you are always a player. If you want to be a regulator, you have chosen a career in SEBI and regulation, like Paul Walker did. So there are examples of people who have taken to regulation full-time. So in this case, it was a case of institutional capture. But but if you look at the broad empirical data, don't you think like uh, these uh, regulatory bodies are prone to capture? That seems like the norm rather than the... You, you have guys like Rajan or uh, Walker that you talk about, they come as exceptions rather than the rule. Huh? So what do you say about that? No, no, from now. 90, no, no, please let us look at India. From 1991 to 2020 into 2014, the RBI has been run by economic professionals. This is the first time a non-economic professional has been made an RBI governor. And show me a person from investment banking who has, uh, who has headed SEBI, G.V. Ramakrishna, and a series of IAS officers were the people who ran SEBI. There is nobody from investment banking who became a SEBI chief till now. Okay. Uh, if I can come in here. Yes, sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, remember, SEBI is actually one of the most empowered regulators in the world. It's got powers of search, of seizure, of raiding, of arresting. It has a surveillance system. It's supposed to catch suspicious trading activity. It's supposed to watch out for price manipulation on a real-time basis. 
Now, it's, it's beyond comprehension how it could allow this massive increase in Adani Enterprises and other stocks for such a long period without noticing it or doing anything about it. And to say now that we have, we've sent some questions to them and we are going to be waiting for their response and giving them a huge amount of time to respond, this is ridiculous. I think furthermore, all of the information that the Hindenburg Group has released is actually in the public domain. Some of it is even based on answers, written answers in parliament to Mohua Moitra's questions. So these are all things that SEBI should have been aware of and should have been monitoring and tracking. It didn't have to take a dramatic collapse of the share prices for SEBI to suddenly sit up and look around. So this is an indication, if you like, of the fact that it has not really been functioning as an independent regulator at all. Uh, it's been suggested, I think Sucheta Dalal suggested, that this is, it's really been operating under the directions of the finance ministry, which is not what you want an, uh, a regulator to do. And, and unfortunately, it's not the first time. I mean, the NSE scandal, you know, the derivatives exchange that actually had uh, erupted, the major scandal that erupted, that was another example. The, um, the uh, Satyam scandal, there are many area, times when SEBI has been found wanting and this is a reflection of its tendency to allow those whom perhaps it sees as both economically and politically powerful to carry on without much supervision, monitoring, or even concern. It is possible that it has instigated various uh, investigations in the past, but it hasn't taken them forward and it certainly hasn't followed up on them. So definitely, this is a real comment on the failure of the Indian regulatory process. And even if we in India are not saying it very much, or we, many people are perhaps uh, scared to say it, abroad this is being noticed. And certainly find foreign investors are all noticing this, that the Indian regulatory system is not really up to task, up to speed in dealing with the kinds of uh, tendencies that have emerged, particularly the use of all of these offshore firms. The, you know, the use of these offshore firms is one of the most important things that all our regulatory agencies should have been immediately aware of, where all the antenna should be have been up, where they should have immediately instigated probes, because the purpose of shell companies is to evade or avoid the law. Everyone knows that. There was a crackdown on domestic shell companies to some extent, but we we all know that there are huge numbers of offshore foreign entities that are used by a lot of large business in India and were clearly used to huge effect by the Adani group. It cannot be that our regulatory organizations were unaware of this. And the fact that they did nothing about it is a real comment, I think, on their functioning. Okay. Okay, thank you, Mr. Anand. I have a last question. Uh, another, inter another interesting thing about the whole episode is that it, it's taken an investor, a foreign investor or a short seller to actually expose the whole thing. No, no, no. I won't agree with that, Prashant. No, let me finish the question. Yeah, I am sure like a lot of people here did observe, like I told you when the first, when I asked the first question as well. Uh, but but the thing is that nobody was actually be, being able to bet against the Adanis here in India in terms of a market uh, bet or something. So uh, that kind of brings me to the question of like, is should shots uh, like when I look at the US, I see a lot of firms actually come with hundreds of reports every year saying they're going to go a short a certain stock because they question the fundamentals. Why doesn't something like that happen here in India? I think short selling is uh, very restricted in India. So could 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 you make it easier for them? Uh, you know, it's very difficult to do. It should be made easier. Yeah, it should be made far easier. The 
whole Indian system is rigged, rigged in favor of those going long. It does not encourage people to go short. The securities are not easily available to borrow and sell short. In the case of Hindenburg also, what they have done is they have used credit default swaps to short their bonds. Adani's bonds are listed outside India. So Hindenburg has shorted the bonds. That is, the clients of Hindenburgs have shorted the bonds outside India. They have not done anything in India. You wouldn't have noticed it in India because, A, most of the national media, unlike the Hindu, are captured by the ruling elite. So nobody takes it seriously. The Prime Minister has not replied to the leader of opposition or the principal leader of the opposition. Instead, he has gone on a tangent and the whole media is praising at it. The question is a serious tent and image of India as a regular. In his entire speech, neither him nor the finance minister responded to the uh, questions. Hindenburg has just put 88 questions. You answer those 88 questions, the game is over. Okay, Ms. Ghosh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. Ms. Ghosh, your take. Yeah. Uh, like, oh. Yes. So, you know, yes, short sellers do play a role in every financial market because they actually often either uncover processes that have been opaque or are problematic, and they can hasten processes which otherwise would take a long time to unfold. So, yeah, they do play a role. Having said that, they also do generate market instability and they can often operate on rumor rather than on the underlying fundamentals. And it's only if you believe that financial markets are inherently efficient, the efficient market hypothesis, as it's called, it's only then that you would believe that, you know, all market players together, if they can operate to create the ideal outcome. Now, in fact, short selling is operating on the idea that you can get the market to respond to your behavior because you create this kind of lemming effect. You know, you have some leaders and then everybody else rushes. And this has often happened in many sectors, in the commodity futures markets, in the, in the subprime market in the US and so on. It's not always and only that it uncovers wrongdoing. It sometimes just basically feeds off the volatility. As Mr. Srinivasan pointed out, volatility benefits investors, at least the ones who can actually you know, jump off at the right time. But there is another sense in which this has been important because it has revealed how opaque the functioning of our financial markets are, particularly when there are offshore elements involved and how our regulatory bodies haven't functioned. I come back to that point. So the Hindenburg short selling has actually been, I would say, good for the Indian financial market because it's forced it to confront a reality that, if you like, the political economy of the country was not letting it confront. And there were some fundamental problems. You know, you're trying to do large infrastructure investment uh, using uh, one or two major private players who are seen as close to the government. Now, the nature of infrastructure investment is that it's long term, it's high gesta long gestation period, it often a lot of upfront capital investment, a lot of uncertainties and therefore higher risk and all of those issues, which means that typically private sector doesn't like to go unless it gets lots of assurances, de-risking, viability gap financing and things like that. It's actually better to have more public investment in these areas. That's how we were operating in the past. We would get the LIC to fund a lot of planned investment in the infrastructure sectors. We've moved now to a private corporate model where it has to be the private corporates doing it. And then you create these so-called national champions who are seen as very close to the government and you fund them in every possible way. 
And then therefore, everybody turns a blind eye to all their activities because then they become too important through that whole particular growth strategy. So in fact, it's quite likely that even the regulators, even the public financial institutions, everybody went along with what they could see was an unviable process. It doesn't take much intelligence to realize that that kind of growth is unsustainable and unwarranted, but they all went along with it because it's part of a political agenda of the government and a political economy of the, of the country, which it's very hard to fight against. So I think this reflects a deeper problem with the Indian growth strategy. It's not just the fact of the Adani enterprises being behaving badly, if you like, and, and you know, manipulating stocks, which, you know, it's very likely that they did. But there's a broader growth strategy which puts all the eggs in the basket of a very few small number of very large and rapidly growing private enterprises. That's a very risky way for a gov for a country to try and develop. And I don't think that has much of a future. Thank you. Yeah, I've run out of questions. Hanan, if you got any finishing comments or something, or we'll wrap up. Yeah. I think this is a lesson well learned. Okay. I don't think the regulator has still acted on it, nor has the Indian public realized the gravity of the situation. So there is a long way to go. And I think even today, the people involved are trying to cover up the issue rather than having an open and a clean investigation. And uh, except few people like you, nobody wants to talk about it at all. I would agree with that. I think that it's very clear that even now, the public financial institutions and the regulatory bodies are really trying to evade dealing with the problem and are hoping that it will just quieten down. And unfortunately, the political establishment is also trying to present this as an attack on Indian on the Indian nation rather than a, a genuine attempt to clean up what is a really murky financial and industrial system at the moment. This is not in the interests of the Indian people. It's really important for the public as a whole to realize that it's in all of our interests to have a much more open and transparent system of financing and much greater genuine accountable public involvement in the kinds of investments that will matter for the future. Great. Well, thanks, both of you. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Koch. It was an honor to be in that same panel with you. Well, no, it was, I, I learned a lot from your interventions also. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.